Well, I bring you glad tidings of good cheer today. I'm in the uh, Christmas spirit, I guess, huh? But good news, very, very good news when it comes to uh, diplomacy on the eschatology front. Dispensationalists, historic premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists getting along with one another. We have made, I think, you could say, historic progress. There's a chart that has come out from the amillennialist camp that conceptualizes at least one amillennialist's understanding of how the end times will play out. This is great news because usually dispensationalists are the only ones making charts and the other camps just make fun of us for it. However, we now have a chart from one of the other camps that we can examine, we can talk about. This is great. This is very, very good news. In fact, um, on Twitter, I retweeted this last week and saying, wait, I thought amillennialists were the people who made fun of Christians for making eschatology charts. Glad to see this progress in chart relations. Cheers. (laughs) Well, I want to show you this chart um, and uh, break it down a little bit. He, the, the original poster is Matthew Everhard. Yeah, hard. Sorry, Matthew Everhard. Matthew Everhard shared this chart. He made it, shared it, and he said, Behold, my eschatology chart. Correct me if I'm wrong. Here I am. (laughs) So we'll look at that in a moment. But I do want to give just a quick overview of what amillennialism is, because this is an amillennialism chart. Amillennialism is the view that there is no specific thousand-year reign of Christ uh, as far as being locked in to 1,000 years. When Revelation 20 speaks of the thousand years in which Christ is reigning, it's speaking of the church age that we're a part of now. So it began back in the first century, it continues to today. It's not a, not a literal thousand years, and uh, his kingdom is right now. So they're not saying that there is no kingdom of Christ. They're just saying there is no literal thousand year kingdom of Christ, but instead it's a figurative term used to talk about the church and Jesus building his church. Now, within amillennialism, you'll have different camps, okay? So this is, I mean, eschatology gets confusing for a lot of people, not just reading the Bible and trying to figure out what the Bible says, but then understanding what all these other Christians out there have concluded. It can get really confusing. But within that that general view of amillennialism, there are more specific views where they disagree with each other on other stuff. So there will be some amillennialists out there who say that, Uh, The tribulation and the events of Revelation leading up to chapter 19, so Revelation 1 through 18 with all the bowls and trumpets and uh, seals, all those judgments, all that happened back in the first century, and it's no longer happening. So there was a great tribulation back in the first century, and it's done, and now um, it's just the reign of Christ as far as revelation is concerned. And then of course his second coming and the judgments to follow leading us into eternity. Some who take that view. So now we're even getting, now we're subdividing that view. Some people will say, um, I'm really optimistic about this, meaning uh, the world I believe will get better and better. And there will be gospel success in the world, almost kind of sounding like a post-millennialist but we're not going to go there today. Others will say within that camp, even though they believed 
that the tribulation already happened. It's behind us, squarely 2,000 years just about behind us, that the world is still going to get worse and worse. Okay, so there's one camp. There's another camp that will say the Great Tribulation is happening simultaneously with this kingdom that we're living in. So the the thousand-year reign of Christ and the tribulation, it's all happening at the same time. And there are different views on how that's explained, and I'll maybe talk about that here momentarily. And then there are some people who will say, um, actually, there's a great tribulation in the future. We're in the kingdom now, and there's a a seven-year tribulation still in the future. Everything's going to get really bad before the coming of Christ. Now, none of the amillennialists... Uh, who, no, no matter what view they take on the tribulation, whether it's past, present, or future, none of them are going to say that the church would avoid that tribulation or be rescued from that tribulation through a rapture. So none, none of them would take that view. But they still have different views on when that tribulation is taking place, whether it's past, present, or future. Okay, so that's something to know a little bit about amillennialism before we jump into this chart. Now, I will also say that amillennialism tends to be like the minimalist position when it comes to your options for eschatology. Most people will say that uh, dispensationalism, dispensational premillennialism, as I hold to, is the most complicated of the views. And uh, I would say a lot of those same people would would say that amillennialism is the simplest. It's the cleanest as far as um, being able to explain it. There is no, uh, there isn't a lot of stuff to map out in the future. A lot of that stuff's behind us. We've got a kingdom that's existing right now. Jesus is going to come back, defeat his enemies, judge them, and we're going to go into the new heaven and new earth. Boop, that's it. That's basically how they would, you know, describe it in a nutshell if they had to. However, I think we'll see as we get into this chart that a non-millennialist has made that it's uh, a little more confusing than that. Wow, I already burned six minutes. Let's look at the chart. We're wasting time. Here we go. Now, I've placed myself on the video screen here where I'm just blocking one sentence. I tried to position myself so you could see as much as of the chart as possible. And I'll show, you, um, I'll show you what I'm blocking here in just a moment. But let's talk about what I appreciate about this chart. I guess you could say, first of all, I appreciate that he even made a chart. Charts are helpful, especially when we're talking about something as confusing as end times. Very, very helpful to conceptualize it. A diagram it, may write it out so we can see what's going on. I appreciate that it's not really preterist. Now, it, it, it technically, I guess it might be, but it he he has here at the uh, seventy A.D. thing going on here at the left hand side of the chart. He has fall of Jerusalem seventy A.D. Matthew twenty four, great tribulation. But then he also has over the course of the church age the Great Tribulation, many outbursts of persecution throughout the church age. So it's like Great Tribulation 70 AD, but also Great Tribulation throughout the church age. I don't know. It it doesn't seem preterist to me, though, um, based on some other stuff that's on this chart. Preterists say, partial preterists would say, everything, Revelation 1 through 18, happened in the first century. The only thing left in Revelation is chapter 19 um, and following except for that portion in chapter 20, because if you're an amillennialist, you're going to say that that's happening now, the portion about the kingdom. But basically, Revelation 1 through 18 already happened. Um, That's the preterist view. Now, full preterists are going to say everything in Revelation has already happened and that we are in the new heaven and new earth right now. So they're kind of separate 
they're beyond amillennialism or postmillennialism or premillennialism. Full preterists are like their own thing where they say we're in the new new earth right now, which is crazy. And I did a debate with the preterists that you could check out if you were interested in that. Um, but it doesn't seem like he's taking even the partial preterist view, but instead he's taking the view of Revelation 1 to 18 that could be called the historicist view, maybe maybe the idealist view. Either way, the uh, the view that the events of Revelation 1 through 18 take place over the course of the church age simultaneous with the kingdom. So the millennial reign of Christ and the Great Tribulation are not limited to specific amounts of time, and they happen simultaneously. That's the view it looks like he's taking. So I'm what I'm saying I appreciate here is that he's not a preterist. I still disagree with him, but at least he's not a preterist. I also appreciate here on his chart, you can see here toward the end, where he says, uh, many Jews will be saved, Romans chapter 11. Before the return of Christ and before the revealing of the man of lawlessness, he has this item here, many Jews saved. Romans 11, of course, says all Israel will be saved, and there are many Reformed guys out there, particularly of the Vodibachum variety, but there are lots of names we could pull here, who say that Israel there in Romans 11, where it says all Israel will be saved, is not talking about Israel, but talking about the church. Well, um, that's not the case. I'm glad that he recognizes that national ethnic Israel, the Jews, many of them will be saved. Romans 11 says all Israel will be saved. And I also appreciate that he's open to feedback. He says, correct me if I'm wrong. And actually, there were some other amillennialists who chimed in on a thing or two and corrected him, and he was open to that. I really appreciate that. Um, one of the things they talked about was here at the end, where the big black arrow is on the right side, where he says eternity equals in heaven, and he cites Revelation 21 and 22. He had some of his Reformed guys saying, well, it should probably say in the new heaven and new earth, because that's what Revelation 21 and 22 is talking about, which is absolutely true. Um, likewise, down here, it's not eternity in hell, because we know Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so lake of fire is better language. Hell is usually um, Hades, and Hades is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. But I mean, it, it, it's seemingly like a small thing, good faith correction, and he totally embraced it, didn't try to argue with him. I appreciate that about him, okay? I've never met Matthew Everhard, don't know who he is, didn't even know how to pronounce his name at the beginning. But I appreciate him. He's, he's a brother in the Lord, I trust. All right, so now let's get to what I don't appreciate. Let's put that dispensational underwear on the outside. Um, now this isn't going to be entirely fair because you just can only, you, you can put so much on a chart. I'm going to offer some critiques here. It's like, oh, where's where he going to put that on the chart? How's he going to explain that on the chart? So, um, I, I get that. It's not, not entirely fair in that sense. Okay. But I'm still just going to offer critiques and, um, take, take, take them with a grain of salt or however many grains of salt they're worth. Uh, first, I, first thing I want to critique as we think about trying to conceptualize our view of what God is doing in the world. Um, my first critique is that he starts it at the cross. He, he begins his chart with the cross of Christ, the death, resurrection, ascension, and the beginning of the church at Pentecost. He, he starts it there. Well, um, God's program began at the start of creation. As far as we creatures are concerned, his program began at creation. And um, 
One of the things that I really appreciate about dispensationalism is that it takes a whole Bible view of what God is doing. So it would be easy in this conversation to say, well, look, we're talking about eschatology. We're talking about end times views, and we're talking about end times views for Christians. So let's start in the New Testament and just sum up what's going on from Jesus onward. Yeah, I mean, I get I get that, and I can sympathize with that to a degree. But at the same time, um, the, the, the eschaton, eschatology as a whole, is the fruit of what? Well, it's the fruit of the entirety of what God is doing, okay? And so it does go back to Genesis, actually. It, it goes back to the very beginning. Um, dispensationalism is named after the dispensations that the system ascribes to world history as God has revealed it in the Bible. You could call them economies. You could call them administrations if you would like. Um, and, and they are not clearly lined out in scripture. They're not given titles in scripture. So we have to recognize all of that. But what I appreciate about dispensationalism is that it's taking that holistic view and saying, look, what's going on in Revelation 22 is based on, rooted in what's going on in Genesis 1. What's going on in the church today with this multi-ethnic worldwide organism that Jesus is building is directly tied to, in some way, this nation that God made from Abraham in the Old Testament. Now, how do they play together? How does this all play out in the future? I appreciate that dispensationalism does that. And so when I see a chart like Mr. Everhard's that begins with the cross, it, you know, the first thing I, I do is wince a little bit and say, ah, there's more going on. Okay, we're, we're starting in the last third of the Bible. That first two thirds um, is pretty important. And that leads right into my second critique, which is there's only one Old Testament prophet reference on this chart. And that is uh, down here, Ezekiel 38 and 39, chapters 38 and 39, where it talks about Gog and Magog. That's the only Old Testament prophet reference. And the only other Old Testament reference at all that I've seen, I, I've looked over it a couple times, is below that, Psalm 2.9. So it's Ezekiel 38 and 39, cross-reference, Psalm 2.9. That's all you get for Old Testament references on this chart. Where's Daniel on this? I mean, Daniel had a lot to say about the end times. Where's Isaiah? Like Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11 that talk about the kingdom of Christ. I mean, these... These are really important. Then you get into the 60s, the chapters uh, 60 to 66 of Isaiah. There's a whole bunch in there. It has to do with the millennial kingdom and the new earth. Where's Ezekiel chapter 40 and onward? We stop at Ezekiel 39. Well, chapter 40 is where he starts talking about this temple and the tribes of Israel coming back and the priesthood service and divvying up the land again, all kinds of stuff. Where's Ezekiel 40 and on? What about Zechariah or Amos or Joel? They all had so much to say about what God's going to do in the latter days, even back with Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses specifically uses the term latter days, Israel being regathered to the land. Where's Jeremiah and the new covenant promise made to the houses of Judah and Israel? Jeremiah 23, saying that Israel will come back and dwell on their own soil. So um, I know I'm a dispensationalist, okay? That's a big part of what I'm, why I'm emphasizing these things. But 
I mean, surely you can understand where I'm coming from on this, right? I mean, so much was set up as far as the storyline is concerned. So much was set up in the Old Testament. And this is probably the biggest difference between dispensationalism and all other end times views. Dispensationalism sees that first two thirds of the Bible setting up a trajectory of how the story is going to go, how God's program is going to go. God is revealing what he's going to do. And we don't believe the New Testament changes that storyline. We don't believe the New Testament supplants it or gives us uh, new definitions for terms that God used in the first two thirds of the book. We believe that God's going to hold to what he said in those first two thirds. So that's why there's a lot of emphasis on Old Testament prophecy in the dispensationalism camp, because we're saying, look, God said it, he's going to do it. He promised it, he will see to it. And what I, <laughs> the way I react, I guess I could say, when I see a chart like this from an amillennial perspective is, what about all that other stuff that God had promised? And that's, I don't know, I guess a little bit disheartening for me. Tied to that is, also in this chart, there's only one reference to Revelation before Revelation 19. Revelation 19, of course, is the second coming of Jesus. And we see that referenced up here in the top right of the chart about the return of Christ, which he equivalates with the rapture. I'll talk about that momentarily. But he's got these other references along with Revelation 19 that talk about the second coming. He's got up here, Christ is king. We are in the church age right now, We're in the, which is the millennium. We are in the millennium of Christ. He references Revelation 20. Down here, Revel, uh, Revelation 20, verse 10, to talk about eternity, uh, suffering the wrath of God in hell, or again, I would say lake of fire, eternity in heaven or new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21, 22. So you got all these Revelation references. But where are the references to the details of Revelation leading up to the second coming? There's only one reference. It's right here, Revelation 16, 16, tied to Armageddon and Gog and Magog with Ezekiel and Psalm 2. Where are the other references to Revelation? And why is that important? Well, it's important because there's a lot going on. There are a lot of details in Revelation regarding the tribulation period, the tribulation period that he says is in AD 70, but also says it's happening now during the church age. It gives us timetables. It talks about 42 months or three and a half years, several times in Revelation. Um, it talks about just all kinds of interesting ways that God is going to pour out his judgment on the face of the earth. So again, going back to the way he articulated it here, the great tribulation, he says, there are many outbursts of persecution throughout the entire church age. And he's got like these brackets here that I guess represent outbursts of persecution, or maybe that's peacetime. I mean, either way, it's just like a, a wave where it's like persecution, peace, persecution, peace. And let me move. Oh, no, I moved the wrong thing. Let me move me. Oh, I'm still moving the wrong thing. Let me move me. There we go. <laughs> the thing that I've been blocking this whole time is he says these capital A's that are on the timeline represent many antichrists referencing first John two, where the apostle John says there have been many antichrists that are, that have come out in the world, even in his day. And he knows by this, that they're in the last hour. And so you've got many antichrists. We're not looking for one particular antichrist yet. There are many antichrists throughout the tribulation time. 
and it's persecution throughout the church age. That's the great tribulation. Moving myself back now. Well, the reason why I think it's important that the rest of Revelation be brought to bear on this timeline is because even though, yes, there's persecution of believers in Jesus happening in the book of Revelation, there's also a lot of, and you could even say a lot more of, God directly pouring his wrath out on the face of the earth through his angels. When's that happening? Now, maybe he would say those parts are relegated to 70 AD. I don't know. That part's just not clear. So uh, if that's his view, then maybe my critique there is just that part's not clear on the chart. Um, again, going back to this uh, rapture, second coming stuff here at the end of the chart, rapture is the return of Christ. Return of Christ is the rapture. References these passages to talk about that. I'm going to, of course, quibble with that as a dispensationalist. I believe in a rapture of the church that is separate from the second coming of Christ, a rapture of the church that's before the Great Tribulation. I believe all the events of the Great Tribulation are yet future, and that the church of Jesus Christ will be evacuated uh, before that time. Why do I believe that? Well, there are some really important passages that talk about this that are not included on Mr. Everhard's chart. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says he's going to come back and receive his church to himself, his disciples. He's going to receive them to himself and take them to the Father's house where there are many dwelling places. That means we're meeting Jesus. He's receiving us. We're meeting him, and he's taking us away from earth to the Father's house. That's really fascinating. There's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that Jesus saves us from the wrath that is to come. Wow. Okay, there is wrath that is coming. It's going to come upon the whole world, and Jesus saves us from that wrath. Similar language is used in Revelation chapter 3, the uh, message to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus says to that church that he's going to spare them, rescue them, save them from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. So there's an hour of trial or testing or an outpouring of God's wrath that's coming upon the whole world, and yet the promise to the believers in Philadelphia is that they will be spared from that. That's amazing. If you want to dig into the Greek grammar on that, Robert Thomas in his commentary on Revelation does that very thing and talks about how that means you're being spared from it. Not spared through it, but spared from it. It's quite interesting. You've also got in Revelation leading up to the second coming of Christ, you have uh, this amazing and frightening statement in Revelation 13, where it talks about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast, that he will wage war with the saints and overcome them. However, we are told by Jesus in Matthew 16 that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church has promised victory. The church has promised success in many ways with the gospel that Jesus will build his church and that evil will not overcome the church. And yet we see in Revelation 13 that the beast, the Antichrist, who gets his authority from the dragon, who is Satan, okay, he's talking about the gates of hell. We're talking about Satan here, that the beast is able to overcome the saints during that time. 
Well, that means I think we're dealing with saints here who aren't in the church. I think the church is gone by this time. So there are a bunch of passages for people to consider, people to chew on. Again, not super fair for Mr. Everhard, because how do you put all that into a chart and have your defense of those things? Well, I just, I'm just pointing out that those verses are missing, okay? <laughs> like, for instance, here at the end where he says, return of Christ equals rapture, and he lists these passages. Why not list John 14, 1 through 3? Well, because in John 14, 1 through 3, we're going to the Father's house. We're not returning downward with Christ. We're going to the Father's house. All right, so there's that. Um, one last critique that I have here. I feel like we're uh, lacking on resurrections and judgments. So at the end, he has return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And at that time, judgment of the world is happening, which then leads us right into eternity. Well, um, we know that there's a first resurrection. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that. And there's a pretty traditional amillennial view of that that essentially spiritualizes that saying that there's a resurrection in the person's heart, that you will be, as a Christian, there's a first resurrection, that's when you're born again, and your second resurrection is your physical resurrection. Um, okay, but there's still resurrection stuff that's talked about in the Bible that has to be dealt with, like actual true physical resurrection uh, things. Uh, but I guess what really what I'm concerned about is the judgment aspect. All that he has for judgments is judgment of the world. So I've actually wondered this for a while, and maybe there's a listener out there who's all millennial or reformed in some way that can inform me. I've wondered, how do you fit in all the judgments that the Bible talks about? Because there will be a judgment for Christians. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When's that going to happen? Um, where we have to give an account of what we've done in the body, whether good or bad, and we'll receive a reward, we'll receive recompense, and we'll watch those things that were not done for Christ burn, and we'll suffer loss, and all that stuff's going on. When's that going to happen? There's the sheep and the goats judgment. Matthew 25, Jesus comes back, separates the sheep from the goats. When's that happening? Because that's distinct from the great white throne judgment, which is in Revelation chapter 20, where the dead, great and small, are all standing before uh, the Lord's great white throne. And the books were opened, and you've got their deeds written in the, one of the books, and you've got the book of life. And if their name's not found in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, I guess you would have to say that the sheep and goats judgment is the same as the great white throne judgment, but there are some distinctions there. And that's those are both distinct from the Christian's judgment before the judgment seat of God or the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. So how, how, do, how do the judgments work? What's the timeline there of judgment? Because remember, and this is, I think, another really strong case for the dispensational view, the pre-tribulational rapture view, is that the armies of God, who is also the bride of Christ, return with Christ wearing white linen. It says in Revelation 19, that the bride makes herself ready, wearing fine linen, white and pure. And we return with Christ in Revelation 19, the armies of heaven. Well, how did we get up there in the first place? Well, we had to be raptured. How did we get white linen? How did we get pure? The righteous deeds of the saints is what Revelation 19 says the white linen represents. Well, that means that we had to go through our judgment, right? The, the, the burning of the burning away of those things that were not the righteous deeds of the saints had to happen already. So that way we 
could then move forward with Christ in this amazing program of God to return with him, white and clean, glorified, made perfect, and to reign with him afterwards. I, I just don't know how that gets explained in the amillennial framework. Um, if we get raptured just up to the clouds and then turn around and come right back down, when's our judgment where all that's left are the righteous deeds of the saints? Okay. All right. I've said enough. So that's my critique of uh, this chart. I mean, there's obviously more to say. There's always more to say, but that's my, that's my critique. And so I'll conclude with just a couple of thoughts here. Um, first being, let's keep doing this. Let's keep making charts. Let's keep chart relations warm between the different end times camps. I think this is really good for Christians because charts are very helpful, aren't they? When it comes to studying scripture, aren't these types of charts really helpful to see different views that people have, not only in our personal study, but in our conversations with one another, we can say, okay, let's look at your chart together and let me ask some questions and we can interact that way. I think it's, it's really, really helpful. And uh, I would say too, as a concluding thought, that if anyone is getting into charts and thinking, okay, yeah, that, that is a good idea. I want to go look up, look up charts or make my own. The most comprehensive charts that you're going to find are the dispensational ones. So I know I, I, I brought up a lot of things today and I said it's kind of unfair to do that because how do you put all that in one chart? Well, the dispensationalists are the ones who try. <laughs> We're the ones who try to put it all in one chart. Clarence Larkin was famous for making all his charts, but there have been a lot of dispensational charts made through the years. And if you want to find comprehensive ones that incorporate a lot of the Old Testament, go to the dispensational route and see what we have to say. Okay? Very good. Well, thanks for joining me today. I uh, hope that's helpful for Matthew Everhard. We're looking for feedback. hope that's helpful for you as we're examining the different views of the end times. I appreciate his effort there. And God bless you as you continue to do theology.